Four years ago, I got a zero on a quantum physics exam. Today, I'm in a top-tier astrophysics PhD program. STEM is hard for everyone. Grades don't mean you're not good enough to do it. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby, Sarafina Nance. Well, there you go. I hope that's inspiring to everybody. Well, I'll tell you what, it was a tweet that I saw from obviously a PhD student who's got mm. who's published a couple of papers. But don't be put off if you do badly in your exams. You just have to work hard and everyone can do it. And I really like that sentiment, as you know, Jamie. Yeah, that's completely great. We've spoken about it before. So please, if you're worried about your results, don't. you just got to put the effort in. Just put a little bit more effort in. And if you're passionate enough about it, then it will happen. There you go. Do what you love, man. I mean, I never thought that I'd be the world's biggest space podcast model, but here we are. (laughs) It went viral, that that tweet. The amount of scientists that then chipped in and lots of people being inspired, it was very, very cool. No doubt. Very cool tweet indeed by star-stricken SF. So Matt, we've got a we've got a wonderful interview later. Can you can you give us any teasers to as to who that's with? Yes, it's Chris Lintot, who who British listeners will know from the Sky at Night, and international Ooh, yes. listeners will know him from the Zooniverse, um, Ooh, and his yeah. books and his books with Brian May, etc. So yes, he's he's. He's absolutely brilliant. He'll absolutely love this interview, Jamie. He, we, we talk about Churilyamov, Cherisomenko. Dead cow. And we, t- <laughs> we talk about quite a few other things, including um, he's, he's got, I think he might actually have the best pick for the space playlist as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, let's leave. That's a hell of a cliffhanger. It's a humdinger. Ooh. It's a really good interview. I really enjoyed it. Can't wait for that. I've just been editing it, and then I got to the end of the edit, and and my computer crashed, and I've lost the edit, so I have to do it again. But I don't yeah. mind because that means I get to listen to the interview again, which is well, exactly is a lot to take in, lot to take every, in every every space cloud. Exactly, Jamie. Do you know what I want to talk about this week? Go on. You're going to like this one. Space disasters. Oh, this sounds good. Yeah, this isn't the space disasters that involve astronauts i've left that completely i off. was gonna say yeah i mean this sounds good apart from if anyone's hurt oh well no there's lots of people being hurt in this in fact oh this week or well in the, in the last couple of weeks there's, there was a chinese long march rocket that uh, was being used to launch the beidou satellites the chinese yes. gps and again one of them has crashed down into a populated area Mm. dumping all its toxic gas, et cetera, et cetera. And, and obviously the, the coming down from a great height smashes buildings to bits as well. So if you if you really think about just how bad that is, I mean, can you imagine any other industry where just the normal taking part in that industry is risking the general public's life to such an extent? Yeah, that's very true. And, and, it's, like, and it's not even uncommon. And so I thought, well, I wonder how uncommon it is. So I thought, well, let's let's have a look back at the history. Let's but, do it. Yeah, but well, before we go on, it's just like 
I'm going to reiterate this point, Jamie, that, that China's launch facility, it's, it's kind of very landlocked. And so it has to launch over populated areas, unlike virtually mm. all the other world launch sites, which launch over the ocean. Mm. And even then, only once they've cleared the shipping and made, every, and made very, very sure that everything's, you know, perfectly okay, yes. as best as they can. So, yes, I just wanted to say that, you know, every single human life that's lost like this is is just is too high a price, I think. You just can't go totally around agree. doing that. Totally you? agree. Yeah. They're, they're, at the end of the day, there are other options and <laughs> they choose not to take them. Yeah. So just remember, everyone is a fellow human with a head full of dreams and a heart that breaks in all the same places as our own. Wow, like Matt. Yeah. Is that your one? No, I, I heard it on another podcast and I just thought, if you wanted to humanise someone, which we should do, then that's a very good way of doing it, that every single person is just like you and me. That is, isn't it? Just so, so next time that you're arguing with someone who's voting for the bloody... Jamie, did you know we're losing listeners because we get too Because of me. Because of you. <laughs> Well, good. I care that uh, that we remain impartial and that science talks for itself, Jamie. I would never have a go at someone. I mean, I have a go at politicians because that's what they're there for. They shouldn't yeah, get they, in the job if they can't take a bit of flack, and I'm pretty sure they're never going to hear this. Yeah, they are. I know that. I know that uh, there are a lot of BMPs who listen to the interplanetary podcast, Jamie. Oh, really? Well, it's where they get their space <laughs> policy from. Oh. Yeah, Jamie. Yes. Do you want to hear my history of space disasters? Oh, do I? Way back in the day, there's the first man, Max Valier. Now he's a brilliant scientist who was quite famous at the time because he'd written a book with the help of Herman Obert, the great Herman Obert. Uh, and he wrote a, a layman's book about space travel based on Obert's landmark book, Die Rakete zu den Planetarmen. Oh, it's a classic. The Rocket into Interplanetary Space. And his book was called Der Wurstoffs in den Weltenraum. The Advance into Space. And that would go on to be a smash hit in the 1920s. So almost 100 years ago. Wow. And he would write articles in the vein of Musk's ideas, things like Mars travel like and point-to-point -point travel. So they were called things like Berlin to New York in one hour and a daring trip to Mars. My kind of titles. Well, exactly. I mean, a hundred years later and Musk's pretty much banging on the same drum, isn't he? Yeah, he um, is. Yeah, so he developed a liquid-fueled rocket uh, back in the 20s. He also helped set up the VFR, which is the very, very first space society in Germany. Uh, well, it's the first in the world, but it was in Germany. And uh, he developed a, a liquid-fueled rocket and used that on an Opel rocket car, the car manufacturer Opel. Mm. And it was the first liquid rocket car, and he actually drove it. Uh, and isn't this an interesting thing, that Vauxhall is the UK brand version of Opel, 
And the British Interplanetary Society that's based itself on the German VFR is in Vauxhall. Get out. Yeah, so I, I just thought that was too much of a coincidence to miss. Anyway, on May the 17th, 1930, Max Vallier became the first person to die from his modern space endeavours. Oh. A piece of the recoil motor of his latest engine blew out, slicing his jugular vein, leaving his two co-workers uninjured, but I suspect deeply traumatised. Oh, Christ, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so that's it. He became the first victim of rocketry, modern space rocketry. Well, I think that's the first time we've ever said the sentence slicing his jugular vein <laughs> on the show. Yeah, it's pretty gross, isn't it? Oh, blimey. Uh, yeah. Um, well, rest in peace, Max. Yeah, now the next one up is actually shocking. So brace yourself, Jamie. I'm, I'm actually... I'm sitting down. I'm, I'm slightly traumatised by this. So Werner von Braun, as we oh, all yeah, know. Right, um, he obviously took up the work of Max Vallier even further. And 75 years ago this year would develop his V2 rocket. But unfortunately, the booster kept landing on populated parts of London. Hmm. Uh, the very first one being on the 8th of September 1944, and it tore a crater 10 metres across one mile from where you're sitting right now, Jamie, in the podcast studio in Chiswick. What? Yes. And it killed 63-year-old Mrs. Ada Harrison, a Ooh. little three-year-old called Rosemary Clark. Oh, God. And a sapper, Bernard Browning. And it injured 22 more people. So, Bloody hell. But no, but this is, I mean, it gets grosser than this. So the rockets kept landing on UK and European cities the death toll rising to 2,724 in the UK alone. But bear in mind, more rockets landed in places like Belgium. Uh, mm. and, uh, and and there's an interactive map you can go on Google that shows you all the V2 landing sites. And I'm actually sitting very near one uh, when I was at my sister's house in Sutton. So, yeah, it was um, oh, it's, 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 it's all over the place. But way more terrifying than all the deaths caused by the rockets doing their job, I suppose. Um, we're talking about accidents. But the gross thing about von Braun's reign of death was the human cost in making these things. So it's estimated that tw over 20,000 people lost their lives making them, developing what? the V2. <laughs> and to make matters even worse, they were slaves dragged from the squalor of the concentration camps. Oh, my God. So Wait a I, minute, 20,000? Yeah. So for How have we not heard this stat before? Oh, no. So for every V2 made, six people lost their lives making it, let alone being killed by the, at the end of it. Jesus. So more people died making the things and developing V2 rockets than, than actually were killed by them. God damn. Yeah, that's horrid. And then Werner von Braun escapes completely scot-free uh, and becomes uh, an yeah, illustrious over rocket to the space scientist taking yeah. people to the moon. 
and and I can I I, I mean there's two sides of that argument, isn't it? Poor old Werner von Braun, he, he had to do it or else he would have been killed. But but come on, there seems to be a little bit imbalance here. I mean, people, you kill one Just per, person touch. and you have to yeah. go to jail. You kill. 40,000 people and, and you get off scot-free. It's, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Never mind. Mm. I don't know what to think about that, Jamie, but it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stat that's been shocking me for the last few days. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's now shocking what? me. Oh, God, 20,000 people. That's Yeah, that's insane. I yeah, didn't know that. A- absolutely amazing. Well, I think it's important that we uh, that we talk about it. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, the V2 rocket... The first thing ever to go into space, really, and it, and it's and and it's it's every single rocket that we see is based on it, and and you think, mm. well, that's the human cost that created it. Was a monstrous. It's come out of the darkest thing, hasn't it? Oh, it has. Gross. It has horrible. Um, next up, Jamie is uh, I don't know if I can take any more but go on (laughs) I was going to say we thought that when we did animals in space it was horrific but (laughs) this takes the biscuit yeah yeah, so the uh, I mean, this is what I wanted to hammer this point home that that really you shouldn't be firing rockets and endangering people's lives surely we're over this yeah I know and anyway have you ever heard of the Nedelin catastrophe can't say I have well I'm going to tell you about it there was a there was a chap called Mitrofan Ivanovich Nedlin, was mm. a Soviet military commander and hero of the Soviet Union for his work in the Second World War. But in 1959, he became as influential, perhaps, as von Braun in the space race because okay. he was promoted to chief marshal of the artillery. And he concluded, he thought, hmm... Maybe planes aren't the best way to go over America and drop bombs. But my mate Korolev over here, he's, he's building rockets that can go into space. Maybe we can stick nuclear bombs on those rockets. And so he essentially came up with the idea of the intercontinental ballistic missile. Hmm. So he got, you phoned up Korolev and go, wait, Korolev, build me one. So Korolev built him the R7. Now, it wasn't very good at at launching IC uh, uh, nuclear bombs. So it wasn't a very good intercontinental ballistic missile, but it was very good for launching Sputnik. So it essentially mm. start, it kick-started the whole space race. However, on 24th of October 1960, they'd built a new uh, ICBM called the R-16, 30 metres long, 3 metres in diameter, and 141 tonnes of mega-death machinery. Yeah. Uh, and the rocket was fueled by a hypergolic pair, so that's the type of fuel that if you bring it together, it ignites spontaneously, of hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, which is exactly the same as that Long March uh, 3B that landed the other day on on that village probably killing people and it's a that that, that hideously horrible cancerous concoction of chemicals that are basically used because you can store them for a long time unlike um liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen and lots of these other Mm. lots of these other fuels but they're very good so if you wanted to hide you know your intercontinental ballistic missiles and have them in different places you need this kind of storability but uh, Nedelin assured his workers that the R-16 that they were testing was going to be safe, uh, but he'd been rushing, apparently, to meet the 7th of November celebrations of the Bolshevik Revolution. 
and there was a little short circuit in the second stage engine that caused it to fire, detonating the first stage fuel tanks directly below, and people near the rocket were instantly incinerated, including, <laughs> including Nedlin himself, because he'd yeah. sat right up front just to sort of say, yeah, I'm, you know, this is perfectly safe. Of course. All the other people that had seen the engine sort of fire up going, uh-oh, this doesn't look good, had started running towards the fence, uh, but got trapped inside the uh, security fence and then engulfed in the fireball. So, oh, God. Um, well, just think about this. So this is not only Nedlin, but the top missile guidance designer, 70 other officers and engineers who were highly trained in rocketry, all died of just being totally incinerated, and then lots more people died from burns and poisoning. Uh, but one person escaped, missile designer Mikhail Yangel, and he only escaped because he'd gone off for a cigarette behind a bunker, and even he got completely burned, but he he survived it. Um, oh, God. But no, think about the repercussions of this in incident. So you've got Khrushchev, who ordered Brezhnev to head an investigation, Brezhnev insisted no one be punished, but I think Khrushchev was very angry at Yangel for going off for a cigarette and saying, you know, why didn't you die? Yeah. But Khrushchev, because of this delay in coming up with uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, Khrushchev thought, right, I've got to do something. So he based his missiles in Cuba, which, of course, kicked off the Cuban Missile oh, Crisis God and almighty, yeah. almost caused the mother of all rocket disasters, uh, world annihilation. <laughs> so, yes, so, that'll yeah. do it. Uh, yeah, it, it um, also meant that Yangel, who who had been challenging Korolev to sort of lead the Soviet space race, uh, meant that he lost a bit of favour. So who knows, maybe the Russians would have made it to the moon first had they not blown up all their scientists and... God, you're right, that is nuts. I'd never heard that before. The Russians released a, a press release saying that Nedelin had been killed in a plane crash. Uh, but the Italian press was soon sort of cottoning on that no, this 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 isn't this isn't right. And the Guardian then picked up the story in 1965. Uh, then 1976, the New Scientist printed the story, and finally, in 1989, the Soviets came clean in the that newspaper Ogniel. It's a long delay, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Is. The date of that, remember, 24th of October, 1960. Now, incredibly, three years later, on the 24th of October, 1963, at the very same location, another ICBM exploded, killing eight people. So, it's known as Black Day, and Russia never, ever, ever, ever launch on that day ever oh god well no surprises there yeah blimey yep the americans join in the rocket disaster club with a, a third upper stage of a delta rocket blowing up that killed okay. three people in fact eight other people injured but the americans have got a very good track record compared to the germans and the russians and uh, and everyone else, but yeah, yeah, crikey! But now this this one is this one is as a bizarre one, Jamie. Remember my little chat with the uh, Gurbir Singh about? I remember uh, there was a chap who who was in in that story who 
was using mail rockets. Now, I can't quite get over this concept of the mail rocket. Trying to deliver mm. the post using rockets just seems a little bit... Seems a little bit backwards, yeah. Yeah, so there, there's a guy called Gerhard Zucker, a crazy German rocket scientist, who in 1931 began to work on the problem of transporting mail by rocket. And in 1933, he performed lots of experiments in Germany and no one was particularly impressed. So in 1934, he left to go to the UK to uh, did some demonstrations for the British Royal Mail. <laughs> okay. He thought his ideas were terrible and, and immediately deported him back to Germany, which of course wasn't a great time because we're sort of heading towards war and the Germans arrested yeah. him and promptly accused him of uh, collaboration with the British. Uh, I think he did then work for the Luftwaffe, but after the war, he decided to turn turn his um, imagination back to rocket mail, which is just ridiculous, and he did a little bit of furniture dealing at the same time, as you do. <laughs> well, you got to pay the bills. Yeah, and on May the 7th, 1964, in the Hasselkopf Mountain, which is a mountain that's carved into probably into the head of David Hasselhoff. Wow. It's good that, Matt. Good that. Hasselkopf Mountain near Braunlage. He managed to kill three people in this demonstration with flying debris, which I led to the ban <laughs> on civil rocket research. In other words, members of the public attempting to build their own rockets, which was the end of the Hermann Obert Society and uh, other rocket societies in Germany. Well done, Gerald Zucker. But if you Jeez. want to... <laughs> so Zucker, he made a bunch of stamps in 1936 uh, and exhibited them in New York City, but the stamps were eventually used by a Canadian called Wilfred Ashley McIsaac, who launched them 75 years later on October the 31st. There we go. But also, I believe he became uh, uh, the subject of a British film. What film was that? Called The Rocket Post, starring Ulrich Thompson. And yes, it's a well, 2004 British film. Got to be done. So, so that's one film that we've got to watch, Jamie. Yeah. Then you've got the Russians who keep blowing people up. So this is 1973 there was an explosion of a Cosmos 3M that killed nine people. And then uh, another one at Plesetsk, which was in 1980, of a Vostok 2M rocket carrying the Tsilina D satellite. And, uh, yes, that killed 44 people. Ouch. Uh, and 87 injured 43 seriously. And no again, one's learning, are they? No, that was covered up until 1989 as well. The J poor old Japanese, they joined in, unfortunately, with, uh, the, with, with the horrors when their young engineer, Arahiro Ganaya, who was only 23, was conducting a high-pressure endurance test on a pipe on the H2 launch vehicle, and it exploded, and a massive door fell on top of him, fracturing his skull and killing him. So that, that's the Japanese uh, horror yeah. show. Now, now we're into the Long March era, Jamie, which is which is still going on. So the long a uh, Long yeah. March two E veered off course, killing at least six people in 1995. But on the 15th of February 1996, a Long March three B 
failed at the Zhang Satellite Launch Center carrying an American satellite system, an Intelsat 708, um, which was built by Space Systems Laurel and that was destroyed. It veered off course and struck a nearby village. Now, the death toll they put at six, hmm. but that's likely to just be the death toll of military personnel and not the villagers. Oh, uh, and so some people are saying that, that, that it's likely that hundreds of people died in the village because the village oh, has kind of geez. been made to as though it never existed. So if you try and mm. find this village now, it, it, it doesn't exist. It's mysteriously vanished. God. But uh, a lot of eyewitnesses at the time said, no, this, it was an absolute horror story. But there were some massive, massive ramifications from this particular incident. So yeah. the American companies that had been involved got an absolutely huge slap down because they'd been sharing satellite secrets and, and launcher secrets with the Chinese, essentially. Um, mm. So the Long March rockets, after this crash was suddenly become very, very reliable. And one of the reasons was the Americans did their own crash investigation and the sort of technical details of that report were leaked to the Chinese. And it gave them an edge because, of course, they they got all this, <laughs> uh, you know, rocket and satellite secrets that, that the Americans had worked very, very hard to get without killing people, to be fair to the yeah. Americans. And... Yeah. Um, it, you know, so so it's that has led to the ban of no U.S. origin content, regardless of significance, regardless of whether it's incorporated into a foreign-made item, can go to China. So that's it. America banned that kind of uh, uh, working with the Chinese with any form of technology whatsoever. Oh God! And, oh and, man, I'm 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 very depressed. Well. Well, I get this. After that accident, so imagine this Long March 3B rocket's crashed into this village. Apparently, the the satellite itself had kind of uh, broken free and was fairly intact on the floor in the village, on the ground on the village. And the security team from Space Systems Laurel actually went and braved the toxic environment around the crash site to try and recover all this really sensitive equipment, all these chips that have all this uh, encryption, mm. decryption technology and, you know, military technology on board. And that, so they had to send people in. And, of course, they all came back oh, with bulging God. eyes and severe Radiation, headaches. Yeah. And, uh, and it's like, oh, my God. So it's, oh, you know, that, that was bad. That is not good. No. Um, the last one, the last one I'm going to tell you about is poor brazil so brazil oh, the brazilian space agency were building what they called the vls1 uh but unfortunately in 2003 uh incident meant that the vls1 their third attempt to try and launch it it uh, basically blew up and it killed an awful lot of people including many of the important scientists of the brazilian space program but completely dissolved destroyed the launch facility as well. So imagine what a massive setback that would have been for the Brazilian Ooh, Space Agency. So God damn. Yeah, poor, that's not good, is it? 21. But, yeah, no, there's just so many incidents, Jamie, of deaths trying to make uh, rockets. Three people 
died testing Spaceship Two rockets back in two thousand and seven. Uh, yeah, I remember that. There was the people. Remember, we talked about STS One when we we're talking about John Young. Yes, there was three people that died of anoxia. That's when you basically don't get oh, any really? o- any oxygen at all because they were just breathing in a nitrogen atmosphere that you don't even notice that you're dying mm. and then you just pass out and the same things happened with ariane 5 as well a couple of people have died working on ariane 5 from anoxia there was the classic roof collapsing with eight people dying and destroying the baran ah, and then oh and then there was the pepcon disaster 1988 when a solid rocket propellant factory blew up killing two and injuring 372 Oh, God. Can't take any more, Matt. Stop. The only one we've actually talked about on this show that happened during the life of the podcast was when um, the Soyuz MS-06, chunks of that uh, booster fell and caused a wildfire, and Yuri Katyunshin and Vyashulev Tietz were injured and died from uh, a wildfire caused by the debris. So if you top all of this up, and there's obviously many more deaths we don't know about, we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people on the ground killed by the development of rockets. Yeah, it's it's not an easy business. It's not really an easy isn't. business. So yeah, we talk about astronauts. We've, we've, we, you know, obviously we've, we've, we've had to mention the deaths of astronauts quite a few times, but yeah, but yeah, but these people are just as important, really. These are the people that developed the rockets and you know that made their life lifetime of research and things like that. Poor buggers, eh? Jeez, yeah. Wow. Well, Jamie, do you want some good news? Tell me, we've got something good news, Matt. Yeah, Ariane Five. Has taken off, Jamie, and and oh. launched, and launched a couple of satellites up into the up into the sky, up into the there space. We go. Um, Is this the one with the Uber photographers clicking away? Yep, it, it, absolutely. Yes, our mate uh, 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 John Krause uh, was out there uh, with Julio as his um, host. So that double was legend. Yeah, double legendary. Um, yeah, so that was that was the 250th Ariane rocket launch in its 40th anniversary year, which I reckon Not makes it about too shabby. one rocket every two months. Quick maths. Quick maths. Uh, on the same day, ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization, launched mm. 15 satellites into orbit. Not to be outdone. Uh, one was the Cartosat three and twelve Dove CubeSats for Planet. Get uh, in there, and, India, uh, and I think called Meshbed. So yes, India being super successful, and you're off there, aren't you? Very very soon. I am off there very soon. Mm. Yes, you lucky bugger. Can't wait. In, uh, the Cornish Council have approved ten point three million pounds for the infrastructure improvements to Newquay Airport. Yes. So we're, we're one step closer to seeing the Virgin Orbit Launcher One going on its way, which of course will be special guests for Jamie. I'm sure. You know that they're going to invite us. I mean, surely. There, there were protesters, though, Jamie, who were protesting the contribution to climate change, despite a commission finding no evidence that it would actually cause a greater Cornish carbon footprint. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this is what facts, people. Don't forget to fact check the fact checkers. Mm. Is what I always say. We're going to see the Japanese, Jamie, JAXA, yeah. are going to be building a high tech studio on the ISS. What? Yeah. So with the Sky and Bascule, or Bascule, they're uh, they're going to build this high tech TV studio with VR and super high resolution for live broadcasts from the ISS. Wow, that's that's not a bad thing. And in the final piece of very cool news, ESA Council have finished their ministerial Space Nineteen Plus meeting in Seville. Um, they've endorsed the most ambitious plan to date for the future of ESA, and it is pretty cool. So it's going to allow the first gravitational wave detector in space, old Lisa. Finally. Athena. The poster shop. Not the poster shop. No, the black oh. hole mission satellite. Um, then <laughs> it's <coughs> going to continually support the ISS until 2030. It's going to be building the transportation and habitation modules for the Lunar Gateway. Get in. It's going to make sure that all the ESA astronauts recruited in 2009 will continue to receive flight assignments until all of them have had a second time in space. That includes Tim Peake, of course. Tick. Um, uh, European astronauts will fly to the moon. Nice. Yep. There will be a sample return mission in cooperation with NASA at Mars. Uh, they've, uh, they've secured Ariane 6, Vega C, and more interestingly, Space Rider. So go back to ah. go back to the interview about Space Rider. Satellite systems, 5G networks, fiber networks in the sky. Oh my gosh. And, and we are living in the future. We are. 11 new missions for Earth observation and the adoption of a, sp a space safety ba new basic pillar called space safety. So that's a removal of debris, early warnings for asteroids and solar flares. And, of course, the HERA mission, which is going to be in collaboration again with NASA to test asteroid deflection capabilities. God, that is a busy old thing. It is. So that was quite. That's quite a phenomenal me meeting. And United really is. And if you're wondering, United Kingdom, we're going to be the fourth biggest uh, contributor to that, uh, putting down a cool 1.655 billion euros. Not quite as much as Germany, which is 3.2 billion, and France 2.6, and Italy 2.2. But we're certainly up there. And even Italy Canada beating is, us. Even Canada. How are Italy beating us? Well, it's because Italy build a lot of the um, Ariane, and they, they've got a very big space sector. Italy. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I yeah. take it back. Italy. Yep, they're they're big. They're big. Um, but yes, I mean, I suppose we don't contribute as much as we could. Do. It's because we're not part of the launch. I, I think it's because we're not really part of That's the, the whole launch thing. Despite, Yet. despite, well, exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly, Jamie, exactly. Uh, I got you. sent a book, Jamie, that you'd actually love, which was, okay. uh, it's a, quite an old book. It's been out for a while, but if you're thinking of something to buy as a Christmas present, this is a, this is a, this is a cool one. It's called 100 Things to Know About Space. Oh, perfect. 
and it is it's really good so it's it, it's obviously for children so sort of so it'd be perfect for me that's what you're saying well i actually found it really it re- it's really really good book jamie you'd actually really Matt, love tell it. me tell me one fact from it please uh... oh well there's things like it's things like this though there are at least 10 million superclusters in the universe this means 100 billion galaxies bringing the total number of stars to well over 10,000 million 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 <laughs> are, you, are you stuck on repeat Matt yeah so that that's a lot so it's it's, it's that li- is a lot it's, isn't it it's little flat facts like that um well I think that's great so get onto Amazon order yourself a lovely little stocking filler absolutely now I other I, bookshops are available do you want to do you want to hear my interview with Chris Lintot Oh, I absolutely do. He's a professor of astrophysics at the University of Oxford. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. Principal investigator of the Zooniverse. Tick. Uh, host of the Sky at Night programme. Double tick. What a programme that is. Co-author of several books with Brian May and Patrick Moore. Oh, well, now you're just showing off. So, yes. And, and I really did enjoy this. He's a very funny guy. There's some great stuff about... Uh, a great little teasing of Brian Cox, and uh, that's that floats my boat. Jamie, do you want to hear there it? There we go. Let's roll it. Akutai, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's nice to be here. For those that don't know what you do, give a little bit of a background of how you, A, got into astrophysics and all the amazing stuff that you're up to. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm seeing my mother at the weekend, and I think I'll have a very similar conversation. <laughs> what, what on earth do you do for a living is usually the topic of, of conversation. Um, but no, I'm, a, I'm an amateur astronomer who didn't grow up, really. I, I grew up in South Devon as a kid with a small telescope and, and a school that had an observatory. Um, I got hooked into looking at the sky that way, but also sort of the science of wondering what it is that we can work out about how the universe works and what might be out there. And I'm lucky enough to, to do that for a living. So the day job is here in Oxford, um, where I'm a professor. So I mostly care about galaxies, but I get distracted by planets and occasionally by supernovae and occasionally by machine learning and occasionally by other things. Uh, and most of that work's done through a uh, organization called the Zooniverse, which asks everyone, including all of your listeners, to get involved in scientific research. So we started 12 years ago with a project called Galaxy Zoo, and that's blossomed uh, into a platform that supports about 30 astronomical projects right now uh, and much else as well. Um, and I guess most people, if they know me at all, will know me from the sky at night, where I've been lucky to to be working for, gosh, 16 years now, uh, first as a, a reporter and a, a researcher and then and then as a presenter, uh, which has taken me all over the place. And the episode that's on this Sunday is particularly good, so all your listeners should watch it. What's this uh, week's episode about? Oh, well, this is, I, I think this is this is about Rosetta. So we're going back to Comet cheromayoff gerasimenko uh, and I'm really excited that we're doing that because we covered the Rosetta mission when it was on its way to the comet. We covered it when it had the little fillet lander that people will remember bounced around on the surface of the comet. Um, what ESA at the time described as landing successfully more than once I believe, <laughs> or, or, or bouncing and then, and then we went back and covered the end of mission and there was this sort of uh, very emotional moment with Matt Taylor the guy with the tattoos and mm. 
the Big Beard uh, as the spacecraft uh, was deliberately crashed into the comet uh, at the end of its life. But I, I don't think we often talk about the science that happens once a spacecraft's been and gone. So that wasn't the end of the mission. The scientists were all funded for another few years to keep going. And they had, just last month, they had their last ever Rosetta Team science meeting where they were presenting um, their results. Um, and so we've got back, we got access to the meeting. We talked to uh, some of the scientists involved, including a very excited astrochemist, which is always good. Uh, and it, it feels to me, it's like, this is for now the end of the Rosetta story. And it's this nice uh, arc. So, so I'm really pleased we managed to do it. And, and I, I think it's a nice meaty episode with plenty of, plenty of science and then some absolutely unbelievable pictures of the, of the comet. Presumably, the data that comes from Rosetta, that will be poured over for decades, won't it? Or, or, so what's the difference between what's been happening the, the, these kind of Rosetta mission scientists and and the data that gets poured over from now on. What? How does that? What's what's the so, difference? So there's there? sort of two. You're absolutely right. Of course, we, we we do these missions because they provide a legacy of data for the future. But there's only a period of time that people get paid to work on it, and where it's the same people who really know the instrument. So sort of, I think what 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 the aim is is to get to this point, having sort of made good decisions about everything that you saw in your instruments, in your spectrometers, in your cameras, and, and, and to really use all the knowledge that the team built up in building and flying the mission to, to get to the point where they can draw conclusions from that. Obviously, as we discover more about the solar system, you know, the next time we go to a comet, the first thing that will happen is people will go back to the Rosetta data and start comparing it and, and, and looking back and forth and so on. Um, but sort of this is the end of the first book, I would say. Um, <clears throat> It's interesting, I think, how how far ahead we get. I remember talking to uh, the head of Mars exploration at JPL a good few years ago now and talking about the fact that they have this cadence where they're trying to send a mission to Mars pretty much every two years, every time the launch window opens. And I said, but what about analysing all this data? And he said, well, look, you have to realise between the Viking landers in the 70s and Sojourner in the mid-90s, there was a 20-year gap with no American Mars missions. And so we've got to build up enough data that we've got plenty to do uh, in those gaps. We'll fly the missions when we've got funding, and then, and then the data will be there for, for, forever. I just saw um, my friend Katie Joy from Manchester, uh, who's a meteorite and lunar specialist, getting very excited on Twitter because they're opening some of the new samples from the Apollo missions. So these are rocks that were brought back by uh, the astronauts uh, in the 60s and early 70s that haven't been touched. They've been kept pristine uh, for um, modern analysis techniques. So the decision's been made to open some of them up and, and, and see what they can tell us. So there's a whole generation of scientists about to get their hands on pristine lunar material for the first time. And I think that's going to be a fascinating story in the, in the next year or so. Yeah, how, how would you get funding for something like that? So you, you go, I want to open up this uh, lunar rock. Presumably that's uh, a lot of funding required. There must have been some kind of change in technology or something that made people want to open that pristine sample. Yeah, there's a, there's a process for this stuff. So NASA makes decisions about what to release to who and and i think you apply to get access to the rock in the same way that i'm an observational astronomer i i apply to use the telescopes in hawaii or chile that that i need for my research i think if you're a planetary geologist you say i'd like to look at this sample and i will do this to it 
and, and there's a scientific judgment as to as to what makes sense. Um, I think what's happened in the lab is that our techniques have got a lot more sensitive, and particularly um, some of the non-destructive techniques that people could use to analyze samples and work out what might be in there. We could do things that you certainly would have dreamt of doing in the 70s. And this is adding to, there's a big argument going on. We covered it on the program a couple of years years ago, but we need to come back to it, about this idea that there was a late heavy bombardment, the idea that about a billion years into the solar system's history, there was a rain of asteroids uh, into the inner solar system, which produced most of the lunar craters. Most people believe that. Most people who study the moon believe that. Uh, but the evidence doesn't quite all fit together. And, and we need better understanding of the history and the age of some of the lunar material. And, and the Apollo results will help with that. Um, and that's interesting because that ties into how uh, our solar system evolved. One of the causes of the late heavy bombardment might be uh, an interaction between Jupiter and Saturn early on that caused some chaos in the in the outer solar system. That ties to uh, what we're seeing with extrasolar planets. Uh, and the minute where we're seeing systems with planets that interact with each other and which have clearly migrated, which ties to our understanding of planet formation. So um, the reason I'm going on like this is that one of the, my favorite things about astronomy is that you start tugging at one string and you suddenly find you've got the rest of the field connected. It, uh, although uh, people who study the moon do very different things from my PhD student who tries to discover exoplanets, actually their work can affect each other. And, and, that, and that's really exciting. Yeah, so presumably there's there's even little clues buried in the Rosetta information about all that. Is that right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons we went to Trimalfgarasamanka, um, which I'm saying because I can say Trimalfgarasamanka, and one, <laughs> once one learns a skill, you should keep using it. Uh, yeah, one of the reasons Rosetta went to its comet is that comets are essentially the the pristine building blocks from which the early solar system was assembled. And one of the results we talk about on the program which is really exciting, is that uh, you, Rosetta has solved the mystery of the Earth's xenon. So xenon's this noble gas that we think must have been deposited on or in the early Earth by, by its assembly. Um, and there's xenon in the Earth's mantle down mm. beneath our feet, and the that, that particular xenon, the fingerprints, the isotopic fingerprints of that xenon match what we see in asteroids. But the atmospheric xenon, the stuff that we're breathing in tiny quantities along with everything else, um, doesn't match asteroids, but it does match the Rosetta results. And so we know that Earth's atmosphere, and we can work out, you know, there must have been a few billion comets or something that provided uh, the xenon in the Earth's atmosphere. And if they bought the xenon, then they also bought uh, all the other stuff you get on comets, the volatiles, the water, but maybe some of the complex organics as well. So it's solid evidence that the Earth had a a period where its atmosphere was refreshed with the kind of complex molecules that we see in comets, which is really exciting. And to have that nailed down is is brilliant. Well, yeah, that I mean, that's that's almost sensational, isn't it? The um, so I, I've got to go back just a second. So billions of comets, <laughs> is that yes, right? Which sounds like a, you've got billions of years. Yeah. I, so. Or, Billion years early on, so you know it's a few comets a year for the first billion years, which doesn't seem that ridiculous. But yes, lots of the things you certainly wouldn't want to be standing there, um, you know, hoping, <laughs> hoping to survive as a small mammal uh, that early on in the Earth's, Earth's history. Right. Yeah. So w one of the things that um, before the Rosetta mission that people were talking about was the idea that 
the a lot of the Earth's water, surface water, came from comets. But what what's the what's the understanding of that after the after the Rosetta mission? So it wasn't the slam dunk that I think some people hoped for. So so we look at sort of so water comes in different types. I was going to say water comes in different flavors, but that makes you think <laughs> of you know bottled water and green tea and peach and all of that. But um, you have uh, heavy hydrogen called deuterium and so so water has a mix of normal hydrogen and, and, and deuterium in it and that ratio is a signature of where the water comes from the, the the earth's water's signature doesn't match that it turns out on this particular comet um since we've been to been to go to make there have been some suggestions that other comets uh maybe do match and so i think the next stage of comet research is going to be that okay we've been to one comet well, actually, we've been to Halley and we've been to a few others, but we, we, we've done a proper study only of Cherimorov-Gerasimenko. That's one comet. It comes from a particular place in the solar system. Comets turn out to be pretty varied, and so we're going to need more missions. Uh, and I was really excited just a couple of months ago. We, we managed to film, uh, again for Sky at Night, we filmed the selection process for ESA's next uh, mission in what they call the F-class. So this is a fast mission that will launch in, I think, 2027. Hmm. Um, so that's fast by space agency terms. And they picked a, a team called Comet Interceptor, which is led by, by a couple of Brits, by Colin Snodgrass and, and Geraint Jones. Um, and they are going to launch a spacecraft that lurks around the Earth and waits for a suitable comet to be heading in, and then you shoot off and go and see the comet. So that will allow them, for the first time, to visit uh, almost certainly a comet that has never been round the sun before. So one of the big, bright comets mm. that come in from the Oort cloud for the first time in the past, we haven't had time to plan and launch and navigate a mission. With Comet Interceptor, we'll be there ready and waiting. And I think I think that's going to be a great, great mission. I, I don't envy them the choice of deciding which comet to go to. You know, the sort mm. of stick or twist, you get a get a medium-sized one a year in do you go no the spacecraft can last 10 years three years in you get a slightly bigger one do you go i, I don't know I, can, I imagine there'll be some decent arguments about that but it's going to be great fun yeah so so could they actually use that to say if we had another interstellar interloper come in could they use it for that as well Yes, that's come up. If, if, the, if the orbit was right, that would work fine, yeah. So we've got Comet Borisov at the minute, which is our first proper interstellar comet. We had Oumuamua, which was a strange, weird uh, sliver of a thing uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so we're beginning to, to find these things. Um, we're hopeful we'll find about one of them a year with a telescope called the Large Anoptic Survey Telescope, which, which I've been working on with, with many, many others for the last decade. Uh, LSST is going to be, be transformational. It's, it's an 8.4 metre. Uh, it's going to sit in Chile, up in the Atacama. I, I've seen just seen a video of the dome moving, so it's beginning to feel real. Um, but it's a survey telescope, so it's going to scan the whole sky guy every three nights and one of the reasons it's going to do that is we're going to do a much better sensor of moving objects of solar system objects using lsst and we we think we might find a big interstellar object about once a year using lsst i still think Oumuamua is just such an odd thing isn't it there's so many frankly bizarre things about it yes yeah it, it's sort of on any particular axis it's odder than 90 percent of the solar system <laughs> so size shape um color uh, 
So it's not completely unprecedented in any one of those axes, but taken together, it really is is a deeply weird thing. Um, it's kind of I I am slightly disappointed. We've now got Borisov, which is the second. Uh, interstellar visitor, um, discovered by an amateur astronomer, incidentally, which is good fun. Uh, I am slightly disappointed that Borisov appears more normal. Uh, (laughs) It would have been really interesting if the second interstellar one had also been odd. Uh, I was just visiting Alan Fitzsimmons and Meg Schwarm and Michelle Bannister in in Belfast, who are my go-to people for comets in the outer solar system, and was teasing them that the aliens have clearly discovered that they need to disguise themselves better this time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. After the speculation that Oumuamua was an alien spaceship, which it definitely wasn't. They've come in a second time disguised as a comet, which is much more cunning. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, with uh, stepping back to uh, Galaxy Zoo, will will these new big telescopes doing these large surveys, presumably uh, Galaxy Zoo type science, that it'll be used in that, will it? That's right, yeah. We've had LSST in mind for a long while because the amount of data that we get from LSST is going to be completely overwhelming. Uh, and we know that as professional astronomers, we're going to miss out on the interesting stuff if we don't have help to look through it. And so we, we turn to amateur astronomers, to citizen scientists via the Zooniverse platform uh, to, to help. So we're actually in the LSST data control system. There's a command that allows uh, a scientist to quickly launch a Zooniverse project because we think it will happen all the time. Um, To give you an idea of the scale, uh, one night's worth of imaging from LSST is about 30 terabytes of data. Um, Mm. So I don't know if you can imagine 30 terabytes, but it's a lot. Uh, The way I think about it is let's, let's decide that we only care about stuff that moves So LSST is going to have a public alert stream. So every time it detects a change in the sky, so a source that wasn't there before, something that's moved or a brightening or a fading of something, it will send an alert. And you'll be able to subscribe to this alert stream with your mobile phone. But if you do, you're going to wake up every morning to about 15 million alerts. (laughs) uh, That's a bit like my email. (laughs) And new asteroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Most most of my mornings are like that already. But... um, but that will be asteroids, Kuiper Belt objects. Um, most stars are variable if you look at them with an 8.4 meter. There'll be exoplanet signatures in there, the odd comet. Um, my favorite one is that we'll even see the centers of nearby galaxies will flicker from night to night because of the variability of the material falling onto the black holes which is just cool. Um, and so we don't really know yet how to deal with this amount of data. There are researchers all over the place who are writing um, software filters, like algorithms, that will find their most interesting um, things. So if you're a researcher and you care about, I don't know, type 1A supernovae, then you're going to be able to write a pretty good automatic filter that will give you plenty of type 1A supernovae. And because it will find loads, you probably don't care if it misses 20% of them. But what I'm interested in is finding the really unusual stuff. I want to make sure that in the LSST era we can be surprised still because Mm. I think a lot of science comes from um, when we're uh, surprised by the unexpected. By Oumuamua is a really good example, but there are plenty from Galaxy Zoo uh, as well. Um, And so we hope that citizen scientists will help with that. We'll be taking a small portion of that, that stream 
hopefully the most unusual and interesting stuff, passing it to to volunteers. And then we have to make a quick decision, because if you think about this, if something's changing in the sky, it's detected in Chile, you probably want to make a decision before it gets dark in, say, Australia, so that you can follow up uh, 12 hours later. Um, and so this is going to be really challenging and exciting and interesting, and we're not sure how to do it yet, but... We're going to have fun trying. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like a really, really exciting time. I mean, I was just thinking then as you were talking about all this data that's coming in, presumably nowadays uh, part of an astronomer's toolkit is to have to learn about things like machine learning and AI and all those types of techniques that, that like crunching data seems to be as important as being able to do any other part of your work. I, I think that's right. There's been there's, there's been a real shift in 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 the sense that most astronomers now, I think, rather than studying single objects, at least start by downloading very large surveys and interrogating them in interesting ways. Uh, and that has changed the skill set. So actually, we're having to um, some of us are having to relearn some skills. Um, some others of us have, have just got into the habit of I, I just employ really clever PhD students, uh, which, which, which helps helps a lot. Um, but but yeah, I, if, if you want to be hyperbolic about it, that for the first time in human history, what we know about the universe isn't limited by the data we can collect. It's limited by what we do with that data. And so if you can find a smart way to search a data set or to find the interesting stuff, then 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 you're going to do very well. Um, I am fascinated, though, by I think astronomy is a bit odd compared to other places where there's big data. Um, I don't know, think about Google, right? Google mm. need to predict um, what search terms are going to be popular today. And they have all sorts of algorithms that help them do that. But mostly they can see things coming, right? So if... You know, Sky at Night's going to be on on Sunday, so I'm sure an ever-increasing proportion of people today are Googling Sky at Night. Tomorrow, there'll be even more. Who knows? By Sunday afternoon, it will be 10 15% of Google's traffic. I'm just guessing that Sky <laughs> at Night has that sort of yeah, yeah. reach. But, but let's use that as an example. Right? They don't need to know about Sky at Night because they'll see the ramp up today, and then tomorrow they can they can put more servers or, or more information up on, on that area in astronomy a we don't always get that when a star goes supernova there's no way to tell that that star was going to be interesting until it happened uh and so that's a problem but also google don't care if people are googling um i don't know brian cox and obviously a very few few people would ever google brian cox mm. uh then they don't care if they perform poorly and give you the actor instead of the particle physicist because it's only three people they're going to upset. Whereas in astronomy, in these large data sets, where if something only happens once, I really want to know about that because that that galaxy or or that explosion or or that event will tell me something unique about the universe. So we end up in a weird place. We have these large data sets, but we're still distracted by the individual individual shiny things and, and that's actually quite unusual it means we have to develop all sorts of our own techniques you can't rely on the work that other people have done because it's such a unique problem yeah and we have fun trying to do it so yeah <laughs> so, <that too. laughs> yeah. so actually can we go back to to galaxy zoo because I, I i really do think sure. this is one of one of the best 
ever projects. For, for me, I absolutely love it. I, I, I've used it for absolutely years and years and years and years and years when it first came yeah. out, and particularly yeah. for things like looking looking on Mars and trying to and, and following those things of trying to find interesting features. So you were a co-founder, is that right, of Galaxy Zoo? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a discussion that we had in the pub uh, about how um, we needed to sort through these galaxies. If you, if you care about galaxies, you care about their shape, because uh, the shape of the galaxy, if you're being formal, the shape of the galaxy is the integrated dynamical history of the stellar objects. But actually, the shape of the galaxy tells you its history. It tells you about how it's collided with other galaxies. It tells you about when and where it's formed stars. It tells you about all the things that have happened over the last few billion years. And sorting out galaxies by shape is still a task that humans are better than computer at. So we had a student called Kevin Shawinsky who'd looked at 50,000 galaxies. He proved, first of all, that he was better than a computer at doing this, and secondly, that he never wanted to see a galaxy ever again, <laughs> uh, which which makes sense. Um, and so we were talking in, in the Royal Oak pub here in Oxford about how what to do about this, and we just thought we would... I think because I had a background as an amateur astronomer, because I knew that there were all sorts of enthusiastic and interesting people out there, we essentially put them up online hoping that a few people would help us out. And we got this enormous response. We got hundreds of thousands of people um, who wanted to classify, and they were better than the computers taken collectively, but they were also better than Kevin. Uh, we've been mining their results ever since. Actually, if you go to Galaxy Zoo now, you'll find that we're collaborating with machines. So we have a, a robot running on the back end that does most of the work, and then it asks for help. So the galaxies that it finds most confusing, it it, it throws up and it asks people um, to classify those galaxies. So that means the humans get more interesting galaxies uh, and the computer get gets to learn as we go. So we, we're hopeful this will allow us to quickly go through some some really big data sets, which will be brilliant. Yeah, that, that I mean, it's it's totally awesome. What are the what are the big discoveries from the Galaxy Zoo projects? Have, have, have you had some real successes? We we have. There's two sorts of discovery, really. One is uh, one sort of thing that we found uh, involves um, what we've learned about the population of galaxies. So uh, a recent example is that if you've read an astronomy textbook, you'll learn that galaxies can be sorted out into what's called the Hubble tuning fork diagram. So you have the galaxies and then you have the spirals and the barred spirals. And the spirals get split into SASB or SC types depending on how tightly wound the arms are and how big the bulge at the center of the galaxy is. If you think of a, a, a spiral galaxy as a f two fried eggs back to back, the, the bulge is the yolk in the center there. Um, but we find out if you do this properly with Galaxy Zoo, uh, this is my friend Karen Masters led this work. She's now in, in Haverford College in Philadelphia. She showed that actually the, how tight the spiral arms are isn't at all related to how big the bulge is. So those two things don't go together at all. And what that tells us is that the processes that are producing the bulge don't affect the rest of the galaxy. Uh, and that's that's really interesting. Um, I think the discoveries we tend to talk about more, though, are the ones where people found the odd and weird things. And, and my favorite example of this are the galaxies called the green peas. So these were small, round, green galaxies sitting in the background of some of the images that we showed people. They were, they were spotted by volunteers. The volunteers mm. worked together to, to investigate them, to find out what they were. They ended up noticing they all had the same sort of spectral class. And these things 
turn out to be the most efficient factories of stars in the local universe. They're, for some reason, turning all their gas into stars right now, and we didn't know them at all, uh, which was amazing. Uh, and you can find them in papers going all the way back to the 1950s, uh, but no one had looked at them, and so no one had realized that they were distinct and interesting. Um, uh, and, and now there's, there's about 80 papers uh, arguing about what they are and, and talking about how they might be doing what they're doing and, and so on. And, and, and all of that started because people did a very scientific thing. They looked at an image and they went, there's a weird thing there. What is it? Um, sometimes scientific questions are as simple as that. Yeah, the, I, I, I remember those little green things. So what on earth makes them green? Because wh wh when you do astrophotography, you very, very, very rarely see the colour green. Yeah, so they're green in the images. It's partly the choice that the people running the Sloan survey made about how to combine their filters. But they're that particular colour because they're glowing brightly in oxygen. So it's actually an O3 emission. Um, and, and that's how we know they're star forming. So you see O3 emission in a galaxy where you have lots of nicely formed, bright, young, brilliant stars surrounded by gas. And so when you see this O3, you know that the galaxy is forming stars rapidly. Um, and when I said they're most efficient, what I mean is that if you take the, the stellar, they form about um, three or four solar masses worth of stars a year. So that's a little bit more than our Milky Way. But they're only a tenth of the size of the Milky Way, or tenth of the, excuse me, tenth of the mass of the Milky Way. Um, so, so um, you know, that something's really happening to these galaxies. One suggestion is that they are the last stragglers. So, so one suggestion is that everyone, every galaxy might have gone through this sort of process in the past. Um, these things live in the more isolated regions of the universe. And so it's possible that whatever triggers this early in a galaxy's history is only happening now to these last few galaxies. And maybe our Milky Way looked like this eight or nine billion years ago. Uh, that's a pretty controversial idea. Uh, we're looking for their equivalents at high redshift in the early universe and, and having an excellent argument about it, essentially. Whenever I listen to astronomers talking and astrophysicists talking, I realise that it... It seems to be a kind of golden age of astrophysics. It seems like there's so many things coming on and so many threads all coming together. Does it, does it feel like that? It, it, it really does. I think I grew up in the 80s and, and early 90s looking back and I read about Apollo and I, you know, I just caught the end of the Voyager tour of the solar system. And I, I really felt the golden age of space travel was over. And what, I, what I've slowly come to realize is that we're, we may not be in the golden age of crude spaceflight, but we're in the golden age of uh, astrophysics right now. The, the observational facilities, the ability to harness data, the, the way, um, actually the sheer talent of, of the people I work with uh, and for and, and, and recruit is, is amazing. And there's, there's so much going on. I mean, take, take exoplanets. You know, this year the Nobel Prize went partly to two people, Didier Queiroz and Michael Mayer, for discovering the first exoplanet which uh, was their work was 1995, so 24 years ago. Um, you can now go to planethunters.org, and the odds are you, if you spend your lunchtime for a few weeks trying to find a planet, you might well find one. Um, and so we've gone from something that was Nobel Prize winning high-end research 
to something you could do as a break from work uh, with a web browser uh, through another one of these Zooniverse projects in, in about 20 years. And I, I think that, that that's just remarkable. The type of images you can capture just from your back garden just seems to be absolutely incredible these days. Oh, well, that's true too. And the skill of those people is, is amazing. I mean, I don't, personally, I don't have the patience to do that. <laughs> I, I get my telescope out and I look through the eyepiece because I spend the rest of my life staring at the, at the laptop. But I'm in awe of the people who can create, especially these wide field, deep images that are just incredible. Um, one of my interests in galaxies is looking at the faint structure that you see around galaxies so if you take a very deep image so if you overexpose the galaxy itself you suddenly see the remnants of all of the mergers and interactions that, that the galaxy has had and some of the best images of that type are taken by dedicated amateur astrophotographers who knock us professionals into a cocked hat mostly because they've got um they've got more patience uh, and a little bit more skill as well which which is fun yeah, I've the, the, yeah, it seems yeah that there's a, just a whole bunch of amateurs out there who've just got these incredible imaging skills, <laughs> particularly with things like the the Juno data as well, where people are just oh yeah, and I think a lot of that work is fantastic. In some ways, it, it, it encourages lots and lots of other people to get into it because people love beautiful images, don't That's they? Right. They, they do. And Juno's an underrated mission. You know, we don't hear enough about it, but the imaging is just incredible. Um, I think there are discoveries to be made there too. I, um, we managed to get this far without me mentioning that I have a book out called The Crowd and the Cosmos, which is about uh, mostly the subtitles Adventures in the Zooniverse. So it's about the stuff we've been talking about. And it's got a great chapter about penguins uh, as well in the middle. Uh, <laughs> but one, I opened the book with a, with the story of a guy called Ted Strike, who's a, um, I think he's a, a professor. Of, he's a he's a philosopher, but he goes through the archives and he um, found an image of Neptune in the Voyager archive that had uh, the moon Despina, which is this tiny little moon uh, transiting in front of Neptune. So it's a beautiful image. Uh, I always like transits and, and things like that. But also, it, there were only about 20 images of Despina, which was discovered by Voyager, uh, ever taken. Um, and there'd been an argument about whether this thing, this little moon was spiralling into the planet or not. And, and finding it in these images um, helps resolve that argument. Now, if you told me that there was anything left in the Voyager archive that no one had looked at, I would have laughed at you because there weren't that many images sent back from each of the flyby and scientists and everyone else poured over them. But there's still gold in there and it's people like Ted and, and the other amateur, uh, or not amateur, but the sort of hobbyist um, image processors that, that, are, that are doing most of that digging, which is really exciting. It's that when experts look at images they're looking so much more deeply that sometimes they 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 miss almost the blindingly obvious there yeah. is a... <laughs> well, well the, story, the story i have in the the book is um a, paper, a psychology paper called the gorilla strikes back which is where they they took a bunch of um x-rays of lungs where you might look for a tumor or something like that mm. they showed them to surgeons who deal with that sort of data and they put a cartoon gorilla in most of the images and the vast majority of the surgeons just didn't see the gorilla not that they didn't mention it they just didn't see that it was there because their brains 
artists were so attuned to looking at these images and looking for a particular kind of pattern, looking for for a tumor or whatever, that the brain just didn't register that there was a gorilla there waving at them. Uh, and so expert blindness is a, is a real thing. And I think that's one of the joys of the Zooniverse project of Galaxy Zoo. Um, I think if you're not an expert, if you haven't looked at 50,000 galaxy images before, you will see them differently than I will. And more to the point, I think we also find that um, volunteers are much more willing to be beautifully distracted by what they see along the way, right? If mm. if I tell you as a job to classify 50,000 galaxies, and I tell you I'm giving you, I don't know, a tenth of a pence, uh, so, you know, you have a penny every 10 galaxies, then you're just going to sit there and go, yeah, spiral, spiral, elliptical, spiral. Uh, you're not going to stop because there's a weird nebula next to it that you don't understand. Whereas if you're doing this for fun, you have time to stop and go, hang on, why is there a, a green blob that looks a bit like Kermit the Frog in this image? How far away is it? What can I find out about it? And I think it's that ability to get distracted and then become an advocate for a uh, an object that that really matters while writing your book was there something that really stood out as a, as a kind of revelation that you hadn't really thought about before i think the things that that were most interesting towards the end were i found myself increasingly writing about sort of machine learning and its relation to human vision because these days when i tell people that i have nearly two million people looking through images to help my science people say well surely if you've got a computer scientist you could do that in an afternoon and for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier that that's not true but the book ends sort of looking at the future and making some predictions about about where we might be and i think even in the LSST era, era, even in 10 years' time, there will still be plenty of space for volunteers to do science that we couldn't do otherwise. And so I've now made that prediction in print. I hope it's convincing <laughs> in the book. I just hope that turns out to be true. It is probably going to be true, just purely because the human brain and the, and the kind of pattern rec recognition hardware in it just seems to be just so truly fantastic. And, well, and our ability to be distracted, of course. But yeah, but yeah as the data sets get larger, I think... The proportion of them that, that you need to look at probably goes down, but, but there's probably almost certainly, I think, the same amount of work still to be done. Um, so, so yeah, no, I think it's really exciting. We're really looking forward to doing LSST. We've got plenty of projects running as sort of precursors, and, and it'll be fascinating to see where we end up. I should come back on in a few years' time and tell you how it's going. No, absolutely. Absolutely come back on. Yeah, this has been a really, really amazing, amazing chat. I've learned absolutely loads. Uh, I, I love going off in, in, lots of di in lots of different directions. I'm going to ask you just a, a, a couple of frivolous questions, if you don't mind. So we've got a space song playlist. Do you have a favourite space-related song that's not Bowie? Because <laughs> everyone obviously goes... It's not Bowie. Yeah, we've had enough of Bowie. Okay. This is really difficult. When we, when I used to go to telescopes and observe, we used to crowdsource playlists, and it's amazing what tenuous connections people could manage to find um, with, with 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 astronomy. I think I'm going to go for just on the obscure uh, front. Um, there is a song by a, a Birmingham psychedelic band called Misty's Big Adventure, who I've ended up working with a bit, and they they have a song called Nighttime is Better Than the Daytime. 
which I think should be on any astronomer's playlist. Oh, that's a that's a great one. That's not on the playlist. You, you've 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 yeah, won. Think, you've won yeah, the challenge. What else? <laughs> With respect to Misty's, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, particularly, it's my hometown as well, Birmingham. I'll have to check them out at some go. point. <laughs> uh, one one last frivolous question: If you had to bring back a giant of uh, in, from the past to help you with your studies who would it be that's really difficult <laughs> um, but to help with my research you could well you could um, i need somebody tractable <laughs> <laughs> well I'm, obviously having patrick back on the scan night would be amazing and i i'd love to hear i often think about what what he would say about much of of what's happening uh, but but if we're going a little further back you know, I'm a big fan of Edmund Halley. He did amazing work. He's an Oxford man, so he, he's fine. We've actually kept, my college has kept his rooms open for him, so we'd have somewhere to put him, which would be good. Uh, and I think he'd be fascinated by by the dynamics coming from Gaia. So we'll have, we'll have Halley back. Um, I will teach him how to use a computer <laughs> then, <laughs> then i'll leave him to it i think i think that that, that that's my call and um, i've also always been a big fan of him i think he's a man of, of sound attitudes i like the anecdote that um he lived a long and productive life but but on his deathbed his his last act was to call for his best bottle of wine and then drink it uh and either because he wanted to enjoy it or to make sure that the other sods didn't get it and i like that either way way so yeah we'll have we'll have Hallie back please and a decent bottle of wine well two fantastic choices is there anything coming up on the sky at night that people should look out for is there any exciting things coming up uh well we've talked about rosetta we've got a review of the year um coming up and then we take a little break early next year but in april uh we have our 800th monthly program and so we're just uh, arguing now about what we should do to mark 800 Sky at Nights. But I think that's an incredible record for a program that only goes out once a month. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, presumably, does that make you the the presenter of the longest running ever TV program? I, I, I think with some caveats, yes. I think Panorama <laughs> have a claim. Oh, okay. You know, you, but, but yeah, certainly the longest science, running science show. Um, my favourite thing about that is still that it used to be every lunar month, and then in the nineties the BBC lost track of the moon, and so we switched to every, every actual month. Uh, but anyway, it's been nice, it's been nice talking to you. I, I hope that everyone watches this tonight, and I, I really recommend you could get my book on Audible, or you could go and buy a real uh, copy made of actual trees uh, if you fancy. It. I, I hope people enjoy it. I will. I'll, I'll be getting it on Audible. Do you do you read it yourself? I do, yes. So if you haven't had enough of my voice, that's, that's the solution. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks very much. I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Thank you very much for, yeah. for coming on. And I've got glorious sunshine here. Cheers. So, so that will be on its way to you in a minute. Good. Excellent. <laughs> it's, it's, it's raining in Oxford, but that's because we're filming later today. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go, Jamie. What did you think about that? Absolutely fantastic stuff. Well... What more do you want? I know this is a long episode, but I mean, we just keep giving. Giving and giving and giving. It has been a long episode. It's quite a horrific episode as well. It has. We're sorry about that, everyone, but we promise. Got dark. In the lead up to Christmas, <laughs> we'll have nothing but light good news. Yes, that's it. December will be good news, good space news. Good, good positive news only, please. <laughs> so, Jamie, I spotted there's a film called Proxima coming out. Get in. 
or Proxima, as I would probably say, and yet starring Eva Green as a as a mother who wants to become an astronaut who has to decide over her children or a lengthy mission. Well, I think I know what she's going to choose. Really? Or it would be a very short film. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a, that's a space film alert. And do you want to hear my space fact of the week? Go on, then. The Defence Intelligence Agency in the United States has spent $22 million on the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Programme, which essentially is a study into invisibility cloaking and warp drives. Wow. <laughs> yeah. God damn. Yeah, it's always good to check in on Stephen Aftergood for some of the stuff that comes up from freedom, really of, freedom of information requests. I always like hearing warp drives as well. Yeah, warp good, drive. Though. Well, they've spent $22 yeah. million dollars on it. Jeez, that's a fair whack. That's a fair whack, isn't it? Jamie, if you enjoyed this podcast, what would you suggest people do? There's only one thing for it. You need to head over to the infamous website that is www.interplanetary.org. UK and there you'll have everything but what would what will you have Matt well the blog itself which will be the notes from the show uh very interesting it is too I mean often we 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 write stuff and have to abandon it because there's not time to talk about it so there's extra yeah. bits in the in the blog itself uh you mean we could have talked for even more we could have talked for longer Gee, yeah god uh then <laughs> then there's uh our Instagram of course which we try and post daily with some little yeah. fun facts we've had some good ones yeah. this week i think we have uh, of course there's patreon home well of the legends there really is home i mean of the legends if you want to join them you know it's up to you but you won't regret it this show takes an awful lot of time to do and it is free it's free. So if it's you want totally to show your support, free what are we th- what yeah. are we thinking matt i'm not actually sure uh, but it's, you know? it's fun. It is fun. And I've. L- I mean, how am I going to pay for my sprouts this Christmas? What does your does your local grocery accept card? Well, maybe. But I, I mean, if any any listener wants to send me some sprouts, I'll gladly receive them. Bye bye, Spot Cats. Bye. Bye bye. bye.